Amen. You may be seated. I invite you to take your copy of Scripture and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, and this morning we'll look at verses 1 through 12. Uh, As you're turning in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, I want to remind you that we've been considering the theme of discipleship as we have been walking through a study in the Beatitudes. And uh, we took eight weeks to look at each one of the Beatitudes, and now we are stepping back and kind of looking at the Beatitudes as a whole. And as we do so, we're thinking about what the Beatitudes teach us about King Jesus, about who He is. Last week, we considered that Jesus is the new Moses, and this week, we will consider that Jesus is the blessed man. So, Matthew chapter 5, and I'll begin reading for us in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, He went up on the mountain, and when He sat down, His disciples came to Him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Amen. In 1896, Charles Sheldon wrote a book entitled, In His Steps, What Would Jesus Do? Maybe you've heard of that book before. Uh, The novel is about a local church pastor named Henry Maxwell, and Maxwell challenges his congregation to ask the question, what would Jesus do? And the book goes on to describe how this question transformed the church and their community. You might also know that in the 1990s, there was a renewed interest in the book, and as a result, many Christians began wearing a bracelet with the initials WWGD, WWJD, what would Jesus do? And uh, perhaps some of you wore one of those bracelets, perhaps some of you still have one of those bracelets. It's interesting, though, that the title of the book was not, In His Steps, What Does Jesus Teach?, And the initials on the bracelet were not WWJT, what would Jesus teach? Now, let me just say, that wouldn't be bad. It's vital that we understand the teachings of Jesus. But this movement emphasized Jesus' life, how Jesus lived, what He did. And one of the reasons why Jesus was such a great teacher was because there was no distance between his life and his teaching. What he taught was how he lived. And how he lived was what he taught. And aren't the best teachers, the most persuasive teachers, the ones who not only teach, but who believe what they teach, 
and who model what they teach. No one did this better than Jesus. And I want to show you this morning from the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus is the embodiment of the Beatitudes. In this sense, Jesus is the blessed man that is spoken of in the Beatitudes. And it is only by knowing Him and by following His example that we can know and experience the blessed life of the kingdom. So this morning we will look at each of the Beatitudes, and then I want to show you from the Gospel of Matthew how Jesus perfectly embodies and lives out each of the Beatitudes. And then finally, we will make two brief applications. So the first Beatitude, look there in chapter 5, verse 3. We'll start in verse 2. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, and here it is, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, the poor in spirit are those who recognize their utter and absolute dependence upon God in all things, and as a result, they cry out to God for salvation and deliverance. I want to repeat that. The poor in spirit are those who recognize their utter and absolute dependence upon God in all things, and they cry out to Him for salvation and deliverance. In Matthew chapter 20, so go further along in the Gospel of Matthew. And in Matthew chapter 20, verses 29 to 34, Jesus is leaving the city of Jericho. And there's a great crowd that's following him. And as he's exiting the city, there are two blind men on the side of the road. And the two blind men begin to cry out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And the crowd begins to rebuke the two blind men. We can imagine what they might have said. They would say to those blind men, be quiet, You're making a scene. Jesus is busy. You're embarrassing yourself and you're embarrassing us. But the rebukes did not silence them. In fact, they just got louder. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. These two blind men represent two men who are poor in spirit. They recognize their utter and absolute dependence upon God, and they cry out to Him for salvation and deliverance. In the account, we read that Jesus stopped when He heard their cries, and He asked them, what do you want me to do for you? And in Matthew chapter 24, verse 34, or 20, verse 34, we read, and Jesus in pity or that word could be translated compassion, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed Him. Do you know that the word translated there, pity, or could be translated compassion, is the one word that is used most often in the New Testament to describe Jesus' emotional life? That's the one emotion that is ascribed to Jesus most often in the New Testament. Pity. Compassion. So what is Jesus' disposition toward those who are poor in spirit? It's not frustration. It's not anger. It's not contempt. 
but rather it is pity. It's compassion. And it's a perfect compassion. Dane Ortland illustrates this point well in his book entitled Gentle and Lowly. He recalls seeing a leper in India whose fingers were disfigured. And instinctively, he felt compassion for the leper, at least a little bit. But then he confesses that that compassion quickly subsided. And why? Well, because as sinful human beings, our emotional life is not what it should be. With our emotions, we often overreact to certain situations. And with our emotions, we often underreact to other situations. But can you imagine the emotional life of a sinless man? A perfect man. Jesus felt perfect, full, undiluted compassion for these two blind beggars. And it was out of a heart of compassion, perfect compassion, that He healed them. Of course, the Bible teaches us that Jesus Himself never sinned, and therefore Jesus does not need forgiveness. But Jesus' heart of perfect compassion is predisposed towards those who are weak and broken and who recognize their need for forgiveness. Like no one who has ever lived, Jesus honors and He blesses those who are poor in spirit. Do you need salvation this morning? Do you need deliverance? Do you need forgiveness? Go to Jesus poor in spirit and He will meet you with perfect pity and compassion. The second beatitude, look at verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, we noted before as we were going through our series that immediately following Jesus' blessing over those who are in poor in spirit, Jesus declares, blessed are those who mourn. And it seems reasonable, it seems likely that the two are related to one another. So, D.A. Carson, who's a New Testament scholar, states, quote, mourning can be understood as the emotional counterpart to poverty of spirit, end of quote. So, the idea here is that as I feel the weight of my sin and my inability to save myself, namely I'm poor in spirit, then I mourn over my sin. Again, we know from the Scriptures that Jesus was sinless. He possessed no sin for which to mourn. But Jesus' perfection did not cause Him to be indifferent to the disruptive, destructive, devastating effects of sin in the lives of others. And in our own lives. You know, we might expect a perfect man not to mourn over the sin of others. We might expect a perfect man to be indifferent to the sin of others. Oh, that's their problem. Or we might expect a perfect man to rage against the sin of others. How could you? But not Jesus. He is so unlike us. In Matthew chapter 
23, verse 37, Jesus looks over the city of Jerusalem and he declares, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. You see, in Jerusalem's long history, they did not have a record of receiving God's prophets and repenting of their sin, but rather of killing God's prophets and rejecting God's word. However, instead of being indifferent to their sin, or instead of raging against their sin, Jesus mourns over their sin. Did you hear it in Jesus' declaration? If Jerusalem would mourn over her sins, Jesus would, as the beatitude here declares, comfort her. Isn't that what the text says? How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. My friends, this is good news. This is good news and it points us to the reality that we should not hide our sin or excuse our sin or ignore our sin, but rather we should confess our sin and mourn over our sin. And if we do so, Jesus, the blessed man, will forgive our sins and He will comfort us. The third beatitude, look there in verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, the way that I define meekness, and I made a biblical argument for this while we were going through this series, but I define meekness in this way. Meekness is submitting and entrusting ourselves to the Lord so that we respond to difficult circumstances and difficult people with self-control and gentleness. I'll repeat that. Meekness is submitting and entrusting ourselves to the Lord so that we respond to difficult circumstances and difficult people with self-control and gentleness. And we are not naturally a meek people. If someone cuts us off in traffic, we are likely to give them a look that makes them wish they were never born, right? Or if our spouse unintentionally says something that strikes us the wrong way, we're tempted to fire back with a harsh word to ensure that they will never make that mistake again. Regrettably, our responses are often more petty than meek. Our responses are often more vindictive than representative of one who is entrusting themselves to the Lord. Several weeks ago in our Good Friday service, we read through the Bible's record of the events leading up to Jesus' death. It was a powerful service as we read those scriptures and sang songs that were consistent with what we were reading. And in listening to those readings, I was struck again by the extent to which Jesus was betrayed and forsaken in his death. The religious leaders, the Roman officials, the crowds, his own disciples, including Peter, who was the chief of his disciples, all of them forsook him. And in the face of deep betrayal and gross injustice, Jesus never lashed out. He never acted in violence. He never sought revenge. 
Rather, over and over and over again, we see that Jesus was self-controlled and gentle. Displaying a supernatural strength. As a result, one of the Roman soldiers at the cross who witnessed the manner in which Jesus died concluded, truly this man was the Son of God. So compelling was the meekness of Jesus that he persuaded a pagan that he was in fact the Son of God. Listen to how Peter describes the meekness of Jesus in 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 21 to 23. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in His steps. WWJD, what would Jesus do? He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. Jesus is the perfect example of meekness. He's the perfect example of one who submitted and entrusted himself to the Lord so that he responded to difficult circumstances and difficult people with self-control and gentleness. The fourth beatitude, look at verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. John Stott says that, quote, there is perhaps no greater secret of progress in Christian living than a healthy, hearty, spiritual appetite, end of quote. And we see in the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus was a man who hungered and thirsted for righteousness. So in Matthew chapter 4, the Spirit leads Jesus out into the wilderness. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, Satan comes to Jesus in order to tempt him. And what was Satan's first temptation? Satan's smart. Jesus is on the tail end of a 40-day fast. Satan's first temptation to Jesus is with food. Satan says to Jesus, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. And Jesus responds, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus knew that His appointed fast was not yet complete. And after 40 days of fasting, Satan tempts Jesus to break His fast prematurely. But even after 40 days of fasting, Jesus hungers more for God's Word and God's righteousness than for a piece of bread that would curb His hunger. Because Jesus hungered and thirsted for righteousness, Jesus experienced the blessing of being spiritually satisfied in His Father. When we were looking at this beatitude several weeks ago, I mentioned that hunger and thirst are signs of a healthy baby. If a child does not hunger and thirst, it's a sign that something is wrong. If a newborn baby does not hunger and thirst, they will require immediate medical attention, right? It could be life-threatening. Babies are on a mission to be fed, and they let us know when they're hungry, right? 
This intense desire results in them eating and drinking and then results in them growing. And the same should be true in our own lives, spiritually speaking. We should experience this cycle, this pattern in our own lives in which we hunger and thirst for God and for His Word and He satisfies us. And then we hunger and thirst for God's Word and He satisfies us. And we hunger and thirst for God's Word and He satisfies us. And as we repeat that cycle, we grow up into maturity in the Lord. As John Stott says, if we want to be a healthy Christian, then we must have a hearty spiritual appetite. Jesus, the blessed man, hungered and thirsted for righteousness. The fifth beatitude, look there in verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, if we consider the theme of mercy in the Gospel of Matthew, we will notice that the Gospel of Matthew is full of pleas for mercy. And the Gospel of Matthew is full of pleas and requests for mercy because the sick and the hurting and the disease and the and the uh, sinful were confident that if they asked Jesus for mercy, He would grant it. So, for example, in Matthew chapter 9, verse 27, we read there, And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed Him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, Son of David. We mentioned that passage earlier. Or in Matthew chapter 15, verse 22, we read, And behold, a Canaanite woman. And if you remember from the Old Testament, the Canaanites were the enemies of the Jews, right? The relationship between the Canaanites and the Jews in the New Testament is much like the relationship between the Jews and the Palestinians today. There's bitter resentment between the two. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Or in Matthew chapter 17, verse 15, we encounter there another woman whose son was demon-possessed. And she says, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And on each occasion, whether it's the two blind men, or the Canaanite woman, or the desperate mother Jesus answers these calls of desperation with mercy. And my friends, again, this is good news because if this morning you are physically suffering, like the two blind men, or if you feel like a misfit, alone and marginalized, like the Canaanite woman, or you're a mother who is desperate over the spiritual condition of your child, If you go to Jesus and you cry out to Him, He will meet you with mercy. And as you receive His mercy, He will give you grace to extend that mercy to others. The sixth beatitude, look there in verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, you might recall that after looking at the Old Testament background and New Testament parallels of this beatitude, we defined the pure in heart as those who possess an undivided heart. 
who possess a singular devotion to God. And in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus models this singular devotion over and over again. So in Matthew chapter 16, Peter makes the good confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And in response to Peter's good confession, Jesus discloses to his disciples that he will go to Jerusalem, that he will be arrested, that he will be killed, and then he will be resurrected. And as Jesus shares this information with his disciples, Peter is sure that Jesus misunderstood what he said. Because when Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Peter assumed that the Messiah would crush Rome, and he assumed that the Messiah would restore the glory of Israel. And so Peter rebukes Jesus. He says to Jesus, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. You're the Messiah. The Messiah doesn't suffer humiliation. The Messiah rules in glory. The Messiah doesn't die. The Messiah slays his enemies. Peter is not interested in suffering. Peter is not interested in death. Peter is ready to crown Jesus king, and he's ready to crown him king now. And although Peter doesn't realize it, he is tempting Jesus to forgo God's plan of salvation through suffering and humiliation and death. Peter is tempting Jesus to forsake God's plan of salvation in favor of immediate comfort and personal glory. We could imagine that in a situation like that, Peter's suggestion might be tempting to us, right? There's a way for you to miss out on the shame, the humiliation, the death. You can have glory now. But in Matthew chapter 16, verse 23, we read, But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. An undivided heart. Jesus models for us singular devotion, even unto death. We all know what it is to have a divided heart. We all know what it means to be double-minded, to be devoted to Christ one moment and be devoted to ourselves the next. All Christians wrestle with this troubling and dreadful duplicity but not the Lord Jesus. Jesus always willed to do one thing, namely the will of His Father. Jesus was truly pure in heart. The seventh beatitude, look there in verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 20, Jesus actually lays out for His disciples a process for peacemaking. Some of you are familiar with Jesus' instructions. Jesus says that if your brother sins against you, you should go to him alone. And if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he refuses to listen and repent of his sin, then you should take two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, then you should tell it to the church. And if he refuses to repent before the church, 
then the church has the authority to remove that person from the membership of the church. Now, these words represent Jesus' most well-known teaching on the topic of church discipline. But oftentimes we don't take into account what comes before Jesus' instructions on church discipline and what comes immediately after Jesus' instructions on church discipline. And I would argue that what comes before and what comes after is as important as Jesus' actual teaching on church discipline. Before Jesus lays out this process for peacemaking, Jesus celebrates the shepherd who has a hundred sheep but is willing to leave 99 of those sheep in order to rescue one sheep who is lost. In this parable, Jesus reveals the heart of the Father who rejoices over one repentant sinner. Then Jesus gives the process for peacemaking, His teaching on church discipline. And then what follows Jesus' instructions on church discipline is Jesus and Peter's conversation about forgiveness. Peter asks Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Peter is proud of himself. Seven times is very generous. At least Peter thinks so. And Jesus responds, I say to you, not seven times, but seventy times seven. And then Jesus follows this statement with a parable about forgiveness. You see, Matthew sandwiches Jesus' teaching on church discipline between these two teachings on forgiveness in order to stress that the purpose of church discipline is redemptive. That the purpose is not to condemn, but rather to restore. That the purpose is not to cast away, but rather to make peace. Jesus challenges us to confront one another in our sin and to confess our sins to one another. Not to condemn us, but to restore us. And Jesus provides us with a process by which sin is to be handled in the church. Not to turn us away, but to reconcile us to God and to one another. In this way, Jesus is the consummate peacemaker. The eighth and final beatitude. Look there in verse 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And no doubt, the Lord Jesus was persecuted for righteousness' sake. Listen to Matthew's account In Matthew chapter 27, verse 27 to 31. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe 
and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. Jesus was truly persecuted for righteousness' sake. And this actually leads us to our two additional applications, okay? So two additional applications. The first is this. Jesus is the blessed man, but Jesus became the cursed man so that we might receive his blessing. Let me repeat that. Jesus is the blessed man, but Jesus became the cursed man so that we might receive his blessing. In the Beatitudes, Jesus declares, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn over unrighteousness. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And Jesus is all these things and more. And Matthew shows us that in his gospel as he traces the life and the ministry of Jesus. And as a result, Jesus deserves blessing. As the Beatitudes declare, Jesus deserves the blessing of the kingdom of God. Jesus deserves the blessing of comfort. Jesus deserves the blessing of inheriting the earth. Jesus deserves the blessing of satisfaction, the blessing of receiving mercy, the blessing of seeing God, the blessing of being treated as the Son of God. But at the cross, Jesus took upon Himself all of our sin so that He did not receive the blessing He deserved, but He received the curse that we deserve. Instead of experiencing God's kingdom through God's saving rule and reign, at the cross, Jesus was overcome by the kingdom of darkness and He was crushed by sin and death and hell. Instead of being comforted at the cross, Jesus experienced supreme sorrow and loss. Instead of inheriting the earth, Jesus died naked, ashamed, without any possessions. Even the last scraps of His clothes were taken from Him. Instead of being satisfied with righteousness at the cross, Jesus endured the weight of our unrighteousness. Instead of being shown mercy, the one who had shown mercy to others over and over and over again, Jesus was condemned. Instead of seeing God, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As His Father turned His back on Him. And instead of being honored as the Son of God, Jesus died like a condemned criminal. In all these ways, Jesus took the curse that we deserve so that through faith in Him, we might receive the blessing He deserves. I shared this quote with you several weeks ago on Easter Sunday, but I want to share it with you again because I feel like it's so fitting. Charles Spurgeon states it this way, quote, You stand before God as if you were Christ. Because Christ stood before God as if He were you. You stand before God as if you were Christ, as if you were the blessed man who honored the Beatitudes in every way. 
Because Christ stood before God as if He were you, and He took the curse you deserve. The second application is this. We must know Jesus the blessed man if we are to live the blessed life of the kingdom. We must know Jesus the blessed man if we are to live the blessed life of the kingdom. In the introduction, I mentioned that it's interesting that the rallying cry in Sheldon's book, In His Steps, is not, what would Jesus teach, but what would Jesus do? And I want to take that one step further. If we are to be a citizen of the kingdom, if we are to live out the Beatitudes, it is important that we not only know Jesus' teaching, that we not only know Jesus' life and how He lived, it's also critical most critical, that we know Jesus Himself, that we know Him personally. Sinclair Ferguson states it this way, quote, living out the Sermon on the Mount can never be divorced from a right relationship to Jesus Christ. That is what is so unique about this sermon. We can be helped through sermons given by preachers we do not know and may never meet, but that is not the case with this preacher or his sermon. This teaching will change us only when we submit to the sovereign and gracious reign of the one who preaches it. For the Sermon on the Mount enshrines in its teaching the authority and lordship of Jesus himself. End of quote. And Ferguson's point is actually confirmed in the Sermon on the Mount itself. Because listen to the way in which Jesus concludes the sermon. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You see, the key to living out the Beatitudes, to honoring the Sermon on the Mount, the key to experiencing the blessed life of the kingdom is to know the King, to know the Lord Jesus Himself. Do you know Him? If not, let me encourage you this morning to turn from your sins and to trust in the Lord Jesus. Are you getting to know Him better each and every day? It is only as we know Him better and better that we can experience the blessed life of the kingdom. Because the only way to know the blessing of the kingdom is to know the King Himself. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do thank You and praise You for Your Word. And we thank You, Lord, for the life and the teaching, the example of the Lord Jesus. We thank You, Lord, for the way in which He instructs us in the way of the kingdom. And then we thank You, Lord, for how He models that for us. Lord, we pray that You would take Your Word now and apply it to our hearts, that we would, in fact, know Jesus, that we would trust in Him, and that we would follow Him and follow His example, and that we would know the life and the blessing of the kingdom.
Lord, for those who are here this morning who maybe have never trusted in the Lord Jesus, perhaps they've heard Jesus' teaching, perhaps they've even heard examples of the way Jesus lived, but they've never truly trusted in Jesus the King. Lord, we pray that by Your Spirit, You would work and move now. And I pray, Lord, that there might be folks even here this morning, even in these moments, that would be forsaking their sin, turning from their sin, and trusting in the Lord Jesus, in His death on their behalf, on His resurrection from the dead, for the forgiveness of sins and for the hope of eternal life. So, Lord, we pray that by Your Spirit now, You would apply Your Word to each of our hearts. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.